the hell is going on? What's really going on? We said, what the hell happened? You don't have to know what the hell is on it. They, they see what's going on. I don't know what's going on. What is going on? We must find out what is going on. Hi, I'm Danielle Petka. And I'm Mark Thiessen. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, <laughs> you know, do I really need to ask you what the hell is going on? Is there any other answer than... Coronavirus. We have managed to uh, jimmy the lock and break into the American Enterprise Institute to get back to our studio. And so we are able to record podcasts again. So just so you know, we're going to be doing these podcasts probably in a little more of a regular basis. So if you don't get it on the exact day you're used to, we're going to be trying to do uh, more of them and covering this crisis. And we've got a great one today. Americans have been absolutely flummoxed at the inability of our country to get it right when it comes to testing. We're watching South Korea and Taiwan and Singapore and all these other countries have been able to flatten the curve of this pandemic quickly without the mass lockdowns that we're having. And the reason is because they were able to do testing, but somehow we have not been able to get the testing going. No, look, what the hell, a, Danny? It's an absolute travesty. It, it really is. And I don't think enough people understand. You know, we who are in Washington see everything through a political prism have gotten into this sort of, you know, should Donald Trump have said that? Should Donald Trump have said this? I've seen Team Obama leaking that they they briefed the president during the transition on just this eventuality. You know, I'm sorry, shut the you-know-what up, guys, because A, no one expected a pandemic, and B, when you look at the response, I got to say, the guy who comes off not too bad is actually Donald Trump. He's he finally oh, wait, got wait wait, wait wait say it again wait, say it again, Danny. Look, Donald. Look, <laughs> I, I think I think at the beginning of this, Donald Trump behaved like his usual silly self, and he quickly got serious about it. And I I actually, you know, all of us who've been waiting for the president to be that guy to grow in office have finally actually seen him and his ability to grow in office over the last month. So I'm delighted to see that. What we haven't seen is our federal bureaucracy respond in the same way. And one of the things that we're going to talk about today is the absolute embarrassment. I'm looking for a word that's more extreme, the humiliation that we should feel as the world's richest, most powerful, most innovative nation, that South Korea can manage the outbreak of a pandemic not just better than us, but light years ahead of us. So we got the first confirmed case of coronavirus in this country on January 21st. And we are now, just now... On March 25th. We are just now at the point where we are testing on a wide scale. It is, And still not a wide enough scale to actually match the numbers that we're seeing, for example, the, the ratio for per million exactly. people that we see in South Korea. Because we're a bigger country, it takes us longer right. to ramp it up. We had a six-week delay from the moment that we had the first case to where the FDA allowed all hands on deck, private sector, private labs, academic labs, everybody, let's put everything on in play to try and get testing ramped up. They, they actually stopped private labs for, who are trying to develop tests quickly because the private sector responds quickly. They stopped them. 
and then they tried to do it just through the CDC, and then the CDT test failed, and only then, after all the academic labs and the private sector labs begged them publicly in a public letter, did they finally allow the private sector and the academic labs to go out and do testing. Look, you and I have talked about this incessantly on the podcast over the last month, and one of the things that we've emphasized and that you've done extraordinarily well in your writings, and I've tried to write about as well, is what's happened in China, is the fact that this breakout occurred in China in the first week of December because we have eyes and are able to read the newspaper, that the United States should have understood this was coming certainly by New Year, beginning of January. And yet what we see is this unbelievably tortoise-like ramp up by both the FDA and the CDC. And these organizations are so sacrosanct in our eyes. They're so highly respected that when they screw up, and this has been an absolutely colossal screw-up on both the part of the CDC and the FDA. No one wants to admit it. Well, the government did respond because Secretary Azar on January 31st declared a public health emergency. A month later. Okay. But, I mean, the first confirmed case in the U.S. was on the 21st. Ten days later, we declared a public health emergency, which was supposed to unleash all the powers of the FDA and the CDC and other, and instead... It had the opposite effect, which it clamped down on testing. It had the effect of shutting down labs that were trying to respond because they, like you say, they read the newspapers. They saw the news that this virus was coming. It's a smart, entrepreneurial, private labs, academic labs started developing tests. And the government basically told them, stop, you have to apply to us for permission. And the story of how they had the applications, one lab technician told Reuters, that he sent in his application to the FDA by email and was told that he had to also send it a paper copy and burn it onto a CD. Like anyone burns anything onto a CD anymore. <laughs> and that this had to be, you know. That's, that's it, staggering. And then, of course, they told labs that when they finally gave permission, they told labs that they had to test their protocols on on SARS yeah. and they had and on, on MERS, two other this two other FDA viruses. The FDA told them this, and then the CDC refused to provide the samples because they were too contagious. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's like Keystone Cops. It, it is Keystone Cops, and, it, and we're laughing, but it's not funny because lives are being lost here. You know. And so anyway, there's a great researcher who did an article for the Dispatch in which he did the TikTok of all this. He dug down to find out why are we so bad behind everybody else in testing, and he'd done a timeline with the details of exactly how this happened, who is to blame. And uh, it, it is just a you will hear the story and you will be infuriated as you listen to what he has. to. So say. we'll post the, the story when we post the transcript. And I really do encourage everybody to read it. Alex Stapp is the author of this piece in the dispatch. He's the director of technology policy at the Progressive Policy Institute. He writes a lot about technology, writes about antitrust. He's actually an economist by training. And that prepared him, I think, perfectly to do this kind of analysis. So we're really lucky to have gotten him on the show. Alec, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So you've done a great piece in the dispatch explaining the delays with the coronavirus testing. First of all, can you tell us why is testing so critical to our response and why was it so damaging that we had this delay to begin with? Definitely, yeah. From a public health perspective, public health researchers think about this in terms of surveillance, the idea of being able to monitor how a virus is moving throughout a population, you know, how widespread is it at any given point in time which areas need to be quarantined, where do you need to redirect your healthcare resources. So right now, obviously, we're seeing the largest outbreak in the New York region. And so they, they need more ventilators than other regions do. They need more, more healthcare resources. 
And that's kind of the reason that you want to monitor these things is if you don't know where the problem is, you can't fight it effectively. And conversely, we've seen that the most effective countries in East Asia, like South Korea, Singapore, et cetera, have pursued what's known as a trace, test, and treat strategy for combating the coronavirus. So explain so, explain what that is for a second, because, you know, we keep hearing about how great the South Koreans have done, and I think that the, the numbers prove that, but explain how that works. Yeah, that's a great question. What South Korea has done is, one, they've tried to make testing as easy as possible and as convenient as possible. So they have um, what's called drive-through testing, where literally you can pull up in your vehicle to a remote clinic and someone in full protective gear will swab your nose to get a sample. And then it's tested uh, on site within less than four hours. Usually they got very rapid testing. And then if you're uh, confirmed as a positive case of coronavirus, then you're immediately isolated um, and sent to quarantine. And South Korea has already been, got very quickly up to doing about 20,000 tests per day. And for their country, that's more than 5,000 per 1 million people. For comparison, the U.S. is doing about 100 tests per day as recently as last week per 1 million people. So well, they, they were doing 50x the number of tests per capita that the U.S. was doing because they made it so convenient and that the turnaround was so quick. Alex, so they were able to contain the virus without having mass lockdowns, right? Right, right. So if you're testing a significant portion of the population and very quickly isolating those who test positive, and then furthermore, you're doing what's known as contact tracing. So once you have a positive case, you ask that person for their recent whereabouts, you know, who their family members are, who they've been in contact with, and then you immediately test those people as well. So you're really trying to isolate anyone they could have infected with the virus very quickly to prevent it from spreading to other people. South Korea and other countries are using things like collecting cell phone location data as well to know exactly where the people have been recently. And so there's also an interesting trade-off between you know, individual privacy and protecting society from a, a massive public health concern as well. Right. And the funny thing is, so my daughter came back from Italy Somebody in her program got coronavirus. They told the school. The school told everybody. The school told our county where we lived. The Virginia Department of Health got in touch with us, and that actually worked. What I don't understand is why that worked in one discrete situation, and yet we were incapable of doing that more broadly. Is that a systemic breakdown, in your opinion, Alec, or is it something that, that just Americans would not tolerate? I think, I think it's a little bit of both. I think definitely our culture, um, in particular, contrasted with East Asian cultures, much more, we have much more an individualist culture relative to the, their collectivist approach to things. And so the idea of sacrificing individual privacy for some collective or greater good comes less naturally, I think, to Americans than to East Asian cultures. But like you said, in Europe, they're making these trade-offs as well. And when push comes to shove, I think most people, even in the U.S., would agree that stopping the coronavirus is more important than protecting everyone's individual privacy to an extreme degree in this moment in time. And so I think partly it's cultural, but then at the end of the day, it's also a matter of national strategy. So is there a group of people at the federal level who's coordinating you know, what, how we're testing people, how we're isolating them, setting up drive-through centers, what a quarantine policy looks like? If it's not going to be said at federal level, then kind of by definition, it won't be consistent. You can still have a good policy if all the local actors are doing what they need to do, but you're probably going to get some gaps where people fall through in terms of following best practices. In Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, South Korea, they've had this trace, test, and treat strategy, which has avoided mass lockdowns, allowed them to isolate the people who are sick. In, in the U.S., we haven't had that 
not just because of a cultural reason, but because we lost six weeks in our ability to test. Everyone's wondering, you know, why can South Korea test and America, the most innovative, strongest economy in the world, we can't test and we lost so much time. You did this great article walking us through what happened. Tell us why we lost six weeks in this fight. Yeah, that was a question that really fascinated me as well. And the reason I decided to research and write this article is because I think it was the most critical component of our failure to combat the coronavirus to date. And without testing, the rest of the strategy we've, we've been discussing kind of falls apart. So it's really the linchpin um, and the first necessary step to containing the coronavirus. And so I looked into this and my conclusion in short was that the fault lies with the FDA, in particular, uh, a few sets of regulations and regulators who were unwilling throughout the six week period from early February to mid-March to waiver from those regulations and grant exemptions. Primarily, the number one reason is what's known as an emergency use authorization. And this is a case where on January 31st, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, declared a national public health emergency. And what that triggers is that any lab that's developing a coronavirus test, at that point in time, once there's a public health emergency, is required to seek from the FDA what's known as an emergency use authorization to get cleared to use their test. Which is supposed and to expedite really, the process, right? Well, the, only, right, only right. theoretically. Yeah. Is it, right. That's why and it was you, created. And you explained it well, right? So it's supposed it, to expedite, but in fact, it has the reverse effect. So walk everybody through that. Exactly, yeah. And so I think people think about the normal FDA process for you know, approving a new diagnostic device or approving a new therapeutic drug. That process can usually take uh, up to a decade uh, or more at the FDA. And so, Which is insane. You're the... <laughs> <laughs> which is already insane, right? But when you hear the phrase emergency use authorization and, and the FDA tells you this is a faster expedited process, everyone thinks, okay, this is actually helping us cut through the red tape or create a faster process. But what you need to know is that the context for uh, a laboratory developed test, like what we've been doing with coronavirus prior to the national public health emergency and what the CDC developed on its own, is that kind of test was actually not regulated by the normal process anyway. And if you were already certified to be a, a, a public health lab, you already had the authorization to, to run these kind of tests on your own and develop your own testing protocol. And many, you know, hospital clinical labs and public health labs were already doing tests and already knew what they were doing because the coronavirus is it's a novel virus, but identifying a contagious virus is not so different that you need to come up with a whole new protocol. You can do things like what we've learned when we had the SARS outbreak or the MERS outbreak. It's what's known as a PCR test or polymerase chain reaction test. And it's basically just identifying the RNA and DNA of, of the virus itself. And so the, the process is known. Labs already had the capability to do it. Prior to there being a public health emergency, they were um, legally allowed to do it. But then on January 31st, that process stopped. And they now needed to go to the bureaucracy of the FDA and get permission. And the FDA made what I think is the gravest strategic error in the whole process, by deciding that on February 4th, they would only grant an emergency use authorization to the CDC. So the CDC developed its own protocol and had a plan to ship its testing protocol, its testing kit, to its partner labs around the country, about 200 labs at the county uh, and state level. And they would kind of control this whole process. And what happened there is basically the FDA created a single point of failure. And so if anything went wrong with that testing kit, we were going to be out of luck and lose weeks. And, and unfortunately, that's exactly what and, yeah, and it <laughs> failed. And unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. It turns out the exact cause of why these testing kits failed is still under investigation. But researchers suspect that it's a faulty reagent. One of the solutions that you mix in the testing kit wasn't working. 
And so for almost four weeks after those testing kits were shipped out on February 5th, and they very quickly realized that they weren't working when they tried to validate them. The FDA said, well, we'll try to fix it. We'll work with our manufacturing partners to get you know, the reagent solution corrected. They keep failing, keep failing, keep failing. And it's not till a coalition of state and public health labs send a letter to the FDA towards the end of February begging for an exemption that the FDA can use enforcement discretion to exempt them from the requirement to seek an emergency use authorization that the FDA finally relents. It takes a few days even after they send this letter begging for enforcement discretion, but eventually the FDA relents and says, um, okay, if you're a certified public health lab for high-complexity testing, you can go ahead and start testing now, and we'll give you a 15-day grace period before you actually need to have the emergency use authorization. So you can go ahead and get started. Uh, and then concurrently, they also gave the state of New York the ability to regulate its own labs, and so they could even have more flexibility within, within New York to um, roll out lab-developed tests. And so that, that was some breathing room. And then they realized in the next two weeks that even that wasn't enough and we weren't getting the scale we needed. And so in the middle of March, they expanded that exemption to all labs, regardless of their certification status, and devolved that regulatory oversight power to the state. So each state was then responsible for overseeing the labs in its region. And then finally, as they also said that they were going to grant this to commercial manufacturers as well. And so this is when the big national lab chains came online. So Quest, LabCorp, you know, if you've ever had your blood drawn, you've probably been to your local outlet of a LabCorp or a Quest. And so once those big players came online and that had actual capacity, that's when we actually started to really fight the problem of inadequate testing in the United States. And then furthermore, up to this point during that whole six-week process, we were only doing manual uh, lab-developed tests. But big healthcare giants like Roche, Thermo Fisher, Abbott Labs, they ha sell very advanced, highly automated machines that can do this process automatically and can run thousands of tests per day per machine. And so when they got emergency use authorization in, in mid-March, they also came online and helped us massively increase our testing capabilities. Oh, that. awesome. That's, that's so impressive yeah. for the most powerful country in the world with the largest economy in the world that eventually we will be up to speed. So here's a, a real question for you to sort of dig in and understand. Now, I think that the, the FDA has had a good reputation heretofore. We've got Scott Gottlieb um, here at AEI, who was the former head of the FDA. Scott really worked to streamline a lot of the FDA's bureaucratic processes. And yet, normally when you ask people who are of a conservative or libertarian bent, would you like the post office running our National Health Service? Would you like Amtrak running the National <laughs> Health Service? People would say, no, no, I'd much rather this was in the hands of private individuals. Help us understand why it is that the FDA made one epically bad decision after another. That really gets to the, the title of my piece that I wrote. The title is the regulations and regulators that delayed coronavirus testing in the United States. And really that comes down to, we've been discussing rules on the books that prevented um, testing from happening at the earliest stages and ended up delaying testing by as much as six weeks in the U.S. But at the end of the day, the regulators made the right choice in mid-March to waive many of these regulations. But why so not? But why not in January? Why not, frankly, why not in December when the news about this was filtering out? Exactly. And I'm optimistic that if you would have had a Scott Gottlieb still in the administration, still running the FDA, we would have had a different outcome because that's when it comes down to 
enforcement discretion means that the person in charge gets to decide when those, those waivers are made and when those exemptions are granted. And I've been following Scott's work very closely in the last few months. He was writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal in January talking about how this is a potential pandemic and how we need to be scaling up. He explicitly mentioned in, in one piece that private companies with large capacity and technical expertise need to be coordinated with and partnered with on, on this task. And that's not the approach the FDA took. And unfortunately, Scott wasn't in a position to, to make that decision at that point in time. And then one other thing I'll just mention, because you said that you know, the FDA is so widely respected, at least among the average American, I think that's also very true for the CDC. And I think this is actually part of what caused this problem in the first place. Um, one of the most common responses to my piece has been, why didn't we just use the World Health Organization's testing kit? People have seen in the news that this has been distributed to dozens of countries worldwide. It's been used millions of times at this point. Seems mostly effective. Um, why don't we just use the World Health Organization testing kit? And I think it's, it's exactly the fact that the CDC and the FDA are so widely respected, and they have this tradition of always developing their own protocols, um, and it's mostly worked well in the past, that they felt confident to pursue this, this what I would call a risky strategy of you know, placing all of your eggs in one basket by only granting an emergency use authorization for the CDC because they had what I would say is a hubristic approach and believed too much in themselves um, that nothing would go wrong. So what we've learned from this experience is that we're only getting to where we need to be once the private sector has been unleashed, right? The private labs are the ones who can do this by machine testing. They're doing more efficient testing. You know, we've just had this long debate in the Democratic primaries about Medicare for all and having government have a bigger role in our healthcare system. Isn't this a cautionary tale? The fact that, you know, when the private sector brought in that they did a much more efficient job, do we want the same bureaucrats who made these decisions to be making all of our healthcare decisions? I think it definitely depends. I think at least the one big takeaway from my research on this topic taught me is that it's at least context dependent. And so even some regulations that might make sense in ordinary circumstances become completely nonsensical in an emergency setting. And so especially with a highly contagious disease like the coronavirus or any other virus that we see an outbreak, what happens is that speed becomes much more important than perfection. And so, you know, your average regulator or your average bureaucrat they care most about checking the boxes and making sure that people are, are adhering to the rules in a very narrow and, and strict manner. And that becomes the opposite of what you want to do in a crisis. You want to be able to move quickly. You want to have a diversified, decentralized, distributed approach that brings in a lot of different players, lets people try different things. And so it at least tells me that in emergency settings, this is definitely not what you want to be doing. You want to be bringing in the private sector and letting private companies experiment, innovate, and roll out their products as quickly as possible. I'll give you another example that uh, relates to this. I wrote a book with Darcy Olson on the right to try movement, which is basically the, uh, the people who have run out of options and are have terminal diseases, they should have the right to try experimental drugs that have passed FDA phase one testing, which means they've been proven safe, but they have no other options and they're on, they're close to death. They should be able to get these from the drug companies and try something experimental to try and save their life. And the FDA response to this for years was, we don't need that because we have an emergency protocol at the FDA where you can apply for essentially apply to the government for the right to try. And you just have to send us an application and we'll approve it. And then the, the, they <laughs> give you the drug. And it turned out that it required a hundred hours of paperwork from the doctor in order to apply for it. And so the emergency protocol actually slowed down the process. And it took the exposure of this and the right to try movement to get 
the FDA to eliminate the 100-hour requirement. But people were literally dying because the FDA was taking, it required a doctor to be willing to stop everything they're doing and spend 100 hours filling out paperwork justifying why they needed that. So this is not just one isolated case at the FDA. This is, this is something about the culture at the FDA. It's systemic. It's systemic. Yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. And I think that case you mentioned is, is really telling about the problems in this area. And I think as far as combating the coronavirus, this is not over. What we discussed here today is just about diagnostic testing, but these same issues will come up as we talk about developing vaccines and therapies for people who do contract the coronavirus. And so um, I know that Eli Dorado, who's a fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity, he published a paper with the Mercatus Center here in DC this week, talking about how there should be a right to try for coronavirus vaccines as well as we roll them out. Because we're being told, you know, it will be 12 to 18 months before there is an FDA-approved vaccine. And so in the meantime, people who are potentially on their deathbed might need to have some kind of exemption um, and a right to try those vaccines. And so this is an ongoing issue. There are many regulations that are still slowing down our response to the coronavirus. Um, But at least for the meantime, we've uh, waived the ones that are relevant to diagnostic testing. So, Alec, you, you detail all of this. It seems pretty clear that there are still problems in the process. One of the things that I asked myself, and as you researched this piece, I wonder if you saw, obviously politics overtakes everything in Washington, but is there a recognition inside the FDA and the CDC of the epic scale of their screw-up? Or do you think that they're still, you know, we, we did the right thing, just, you know, a couple, couple of little errors slowed us down? Unfortunately, I have to say the answer is no, um, based on what I've seen in, in the news. In particular, I've seen that Dr. Fauci, who is widely respected as an you know, epidemiologist and, and a public health care expert, I think he's been doing a great job responding to this crisis. But when he was asked directly um, who is to blame for the, you know, the, the long delay in coronavirus testing in the United States, he said no one's to blame, no individual. It was a technical glitch that no one could have foreseen. And so, you know, it's basically saying that, you know, accidents happen and we're just doing the best we can now. And though I respect him for his public health expertise, I think in terms of cost benefit and risk mitigation strategy, that's just completely incorrect. So you may not be able to know that a particular reagent will be faulty before you ship out the testing kit. But what you can do as someone, you know, running one of these programs or directing the national uh, response to the coronavirus, you can say, we're actually going to pursue a decentralized distributed approach that partners with, um, you know, large private companies ahead of time, guarantees there'll be demand for their products, so that they're willing to invest in developing them, and, you know, waive all relevant regulations, or at least grant them temporary exemptions while they have time to fill the paperwork and develop the test. You could have done that ahead of time, and you wouldn't know what mistakes or accidents will happen but your approach would be much more resilient to any potential failures. And I think in contrast, the approach the FDA pursued by only granting um, an emergency use authorization to the CDC was a very brittle approach that fell apart when they hit the first roadblock. Well, you see this cultural problem in the White House briefing the other day where Trump was promoting this treatment. uh, Hydrochloroquine. Hydrochloroquine combined with uh, erythromycin, I think it is, the uh, antibiotic, that there are doctors out there saying that basically using it off label, which is which doctors do all the time. They take drugs that the FDA has approved for one purpose sure. and find it works on another purpose and they use it and they can do that. And Trump was saying there's a lot of hope in this and everybody started attacking him. And Dr. Fauci's response was, well, yes, there's hope, but we have to have scientific proof. It's like when you're in a crisis 
and people are dying. Somebody dying on their deathbed doesn't have time for the FDA to do a double-blind placebo-controlled trial before we try something. And so you've got doctors out there who are trying to treat patients and save lives, and the FDA's response is, we've got to prove it. I just think we need to be more flexible in, in moments like this. I, I agree we need to be more flexible, but I would have advocate following kind of a middle ground approach. I've seen President Trump speak about this. He doesn't add, I think, the, the kind of caveats and warnings that I would, I would like to see a healthcare provider or a public health official mentioning when, when discussing these potential treatments that could be revolutionary, could happen much quicker than the 12 to 18 month timetable that we've been told for, for a vaccine. But I think the, the key is that if there's any kind of right to try law or any kind of exemption for people to try these treatments out early, there should just be the appropriate warnings and disclosures and full, medical full supervision. transparency about what, what, yeah, what data we have. I think that's the right approach. So I think it's kind of a middle ground between the uh, Dr. Fauci approach or the President Trump approach. In the, the culture at the FDA is that you don't get rewarded for speed. You get rewarded for caution, right? So the person who discovered the horrible effects of this drug that had been approved, there's an award in her name. Because your job is to stop bad drugs from getting out on the market that can hurt people. There's no award for the person who approves a safe and effective drug quicker. So that's why you've got it takes an average, as you pointed out in your article, 10 years to get a lot of drugs onto the market. You know, we need to speed up that process. Once you've passed a health and safety trial, phase one, then there's no reason why you can't have more flexibility in testing those drugs and using them to see, because the FDA is not just testing for safety. We all want to safe drugs. They won't let people use it until it's been proven effective in at least 20% of cases, which is just insane. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And I think, you know, my training is as an economist, not as a public health expert. But as an economist, I look at these issues and I think of costs and benefits. And I think the public health approach has always been to minimize costs, right? So any big problem or potential damage to patients is magnified and, and foregone benefits is omitted from the calculation. And so, yeah, if you can keep any potentially unsafe product off the market, that's a win from a public health perspective. What they aren't counting are the loss benefits of radical effective treatments for people who are, you know, really facing life or death questions in terms of, of whether they get treatment or not. So, and I think right. we missed out on a lot of innovation over the decades because of this approach by the FDA. No, I think that's totally right. But I, I will say one of the things that has amazed me over recent years is that tort reform used to be a big issue for conservatives, and it has ceased to be one. And I think we fail to appreciate how much the litigation that our society engages in at the drop of the hat, you know, my coffee's too hot, I'm going to sue you, has shaped attitudes and regulatory behavior. Because basically, if you're a company and you are going to get sued in the way that, say, Purdue Pharma has gotten sued, although obviously there are, there are some rights to that case, but there are also some wrongs. You know, If you're a company that's going to get sued, you're doing a cost-benefit analysis, and it may simply not be worth it. And of course, who loses out? The individual. I suspect that the FDA and the CDC have the exact same attitude, which is, you know, we can't risk a single person dying from this in order for the rest of the society to benefit. In Australia, they've already rolled out trials of the hydroxychloroquine. They've already rolled out trials. I'm betting that we have not. Yeah, yeah. I think we are, it shows that we are definitely moving too slowly in this area. It's kind of the, the wrong approach in my mind. I think that they need more flexibility and a willingness to waive these kind of regulations. 
because, yeah, like we said, in an emergency, it makes sense to move quickly, except some kind of imperfections. And to your point about tort reform, I've also read anecdotally that companies are, who aren't traditionally in this space, um, and this is in terms of diagnostic testing, vaccines, but also, you know, producing things like personal protective equipment, face masks, gowns, gloves, that sort of thing. They're worried about moving into this space and ramping up production to meet, you know, the 10x, 100x demand that is normally there for these products because if they create a faulty product, they're worried they'll be sued, you know, into bankruptcy. And so another potential area for the government to improve the response would be to have some kind of liability protection, liability shield, you know, if the company can meet some kind of, you know, basic standard, then they, they would lose liability for these products because, um, right now, a lot of capacity is sitting on the sidelines because they're worried about potential liability of these goods. You know, one of the lessons that we learn with these crises is that it takes a 9-11 in order to shake up the system. And this is a public health 9-11 in a lot of ways. And we're probably going to, at the end of this, have a 9-11 commission that's going to look back. And, and I think your piece, quite frankly, will be the roadmap uh, for, you know, the investigation of how the FDA messed up. But exit question. We now have finally, after a six-week delay, we've gotten to the point where we have the private sector into testing. We're, we're testing at a higher rate, as you said. President Trump just said he wants to get the country back to normal by Easter, which is probably uh, overly optimistic. But people are looking for a light at the end of the tunnel of when we can come out of this. Do you think that now that we've got the testing up, this will allow us to transition from total lockdown strategy that we're in right now to more of the South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore approach of uh, trace, test and treat and then isolate the patients, but let everybody else who's not sick or not exposed go back to work and get our economy going again? Yeah, I think that's exactly the right approach. And I think there, there is light at the end of the tunnel that the testing is a necessary but not sufficient condition for getting us back you know, out of a lockdown and back towards a relatively normal economy. You need to have massive wide-scale testing available, but then you need to pursue the rest of those, those prongs. So you need to isolate people very quickly, do contact tracing to make sure we've you know, tested everyone they've been in contact with over the previous two weeks, and then treat them appropriately. Um, and hopefully you know, the healthcare system is not overcapacity at that point in time. And so you can do this to where, you know, certain regions are declared green zones or red zones. And so if a region hasn't had a case within the last, you know, few weeks, it's now a green zone where people can move about, you know, pretty freely. But in the red zones, you're still, you know, controlling movement, doing a lot more testing, tracing and treating. And I think we could, you know, have a path towards getting back. I agree. I think President Trump's timeline is, is overly optimistic. But I also don't think you know, we'll be in lockdown for a year or more, as some of the more pessimistic people think. We can follow the approach that South Korea pursued. It just requires massive wide-scale testing. And I'll, and I'll just mention one more regulation that the FDA still needs to waive. They clarified their guidance to say that emergency use authorization does not apply to at-home testing, to where even if you just collect the sample in your home by yourself, you, know, you receive a testing kit in the mail, you swab yourself, and then send that off to an FDA-certified lab for testing. Many private companies have swarmed into this space in the last few weeks to offer these kind of testing kits for at-home testing. And the FDA said, no, this actually used to be, these companies do need to still uh, go through the normal process. Unbelievable. And Absolutely and, and unbelievable. They've, and, they've, and they've withdrawn. And, and it's unbelievable also because um, this is probably going to lead to more contagion because people then are forced to go to hospitals or clinics where other people are sick. And potentially they themselves are sick and spread it around. And so I think there's a a very strong case for allowing at-home testing, for allowing these companies to let people swab themselves and and then mail it to a a certified lab. And so there are other regulations we need to waive. um, But if we can uh, do those sort of things, I think I'm optimistic that 
we could, you know, pursue the, the South Korea strategy as opposed to the Italy approach. Well, one thing that's one thing that, that we've proven today is that there is no cure still for overzealous, stupid bureaucracy. And you've done a great <laughs> you've done a great public service in exposing that. Uh, this is some of the best reporting that's happened uh, on the course of this whole pandemic. So thank you for your hard work and uh, and for joining us today. Take care. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Mark, I really liked your 9-11 analogy in the sense that this is really the kind of crisis that that, that concentrates the mind. Mm -hmm. And what we will need to do after this is have a really hardcore scrub of everything that the United States government did in reaction to the outbreak of the coronavirus. My biggest fear is that people will look at this and say we need more government, not less. That's exactly right. I mean, look, the 9-11, a virulent ideology came and attacked us here at home. Now it's an actual virus. But the effect is the same. This is a, a crisis on the scale of 9-11. This is a, scale, a crisis on the scale of Pearl Harbor. We have never had a situation like this where the federal government, for the first time in American history, has intentionally put the American economy into a recession. That's never happened before. We have ordered businesses to stop functioning. Well, you forget ordered... the Carter administration. Well, of course. That's true. <laughs> That is awesome. But I digress. But we digress, exactly. But I mean, we've literally intentionally put the economy into a recession and told people you can't work. There are people, you know, we're very lucky that we can telework, that we can, you know, come in and do a podcast, that we can write our articles, that we can do our work, you know, remotely. There are people in this country who don't know how they're going to pay their, their bills because of this. And you're damn right we're going to have a 9-11 commission after this to find out what happened. And, you know, I, what I fear is, one, you're right that we're going to say the answer is more government. If anything, this story today is a cautionary tale about too much government in the healthcare system. Absolutely um, and right. And two, that it's all going to be an exercise in trying to blame Trump. Because, which, uh, which, again, you know, is is... As everybody who listens to this podcast knows, I'm totally down with the notion that you blame Trump for certain things. This reaction was not his fault. We have a medical bureaucracy in place that is absolutely pathetic. And what this exposes, what this particular story with the FDA and testing exposes, is our lack of pandemic preparedness, despite the fact that we've already gone through SARS, despite the bird flu, despite the MERS crisis, despite Ebola, we are still not ready. In each of those cases, we dodged a bullet, right? It didn't come here in absolutely. the scale that we wanted. It wasn't because we prevented it. No, it. we dodged a bullet. We got lucky. And this one, as bad as it is, is not nearly as bad as, let's say, a bioweapons attack using smallpox or some kind of virus that has a much higher lethality rate than this. And look at what it's doing to our economy. We need to fix this. We need to figure out how do we surge testing? Why do we not have a stockpile enough of surgical masks and ventilators and all the rest of this? We've had so many warnings about this for so long, and it's just an absolute outrage that our government's not ready and we got to fix it. And on that extremely solid and agreeable note, because you're right, Thanks for listening, guys. Hope you're all staying safe, socially distancing, washing your hands repeatedly. <laughs> so but not washing your hands of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but don't wash your hands of us. We love having you. Thanks for listening. And our team here at AEI is Alexa Santry, Matt Winesett, Jen Moretta, and Macy Heath. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell@aei.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, 
comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.